You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Good evening, everyone. My name's Amy Allison. I'm founder and president of She the People. Welcome to tonight's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. This evening, I am so thrilled to be in conversation with Keisha N. Blaine. Keisha is an award-winning historian, associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. And today at Inforum, Dr. Blaine will peel back the layers of Fannie Lou Hamer, a civil rights activist too often forgotten in the narrative of racial justice. Dr. Blaine's new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, details Hamer's life and accomplishments, many of which have left lasting and influential effects on social justice and community organizing today. And before we start, a quick reminder, if you want to ask a question or make a comment, please ask it in the chat or comment section. We'll try to get through as many as we can before our time together is through. Uh, Let's get started. Uh, Welcome to the conversation, Dr. Blaine. Thank you so much. I look forward to our conversation tonight. I just want to tell you on a personal basis, because I have my copy of your book and um, have uh, had the real pleasure of spending uh, time remembering why Fannie Lou Hamer was personally important to me. But, you know, my first question is, what first drew you uh, to uh, telling the story of Fannie Lou Hamer? When did you first learn about her yourself? Well, I first learned about Fannie Lou Hamer as a senior in college. Um, and it's interesting because at the time I was majoring in history uh, and Africana studies. I was taking all of these courses primarily on the ideas and experiences of Black people. Uh, and so it's somewhat shocking that it, that it took me that long still, um, given that background. But it was a senior year of college. I was taking a course on the American Civil Rights Movement And this is spring of 2008. And one of the things that really stood out to me immediately was what I talk about in the book as Fannie Lou Hamer's radical honesty. Uh, It really surprised me that she could speak so powerfully about racial injustice uh, and she could do so in the presence of anyone. Uh, I was particularly moved by the 1964 testimony that I think many people uh, are familiar with, where she spoke at the Democratic National Convention in August 1964, uh, spoke powerfully about state-sanctioned violence, about voter suppression. And I think encountering Hamer in that particular moment was transformative for me uh, because I saw so many connections uh, between the two of us, uh, certainly uh, as a Black woman, but also as someone from a working poor background, uh, as someone um, who, you know, as a first generation college student, I, I was, you know, somewhat certainly excited to be, uh, you know, in college pursuing um, a bachelor's and at the time imagined that I might one day obtain a PhD. I had these big dreams, um, but I also worried about uh, the feasibility of all of this. I worried about you know, how could I, in fact, obtain these goals? How could I, in fact, make a difference in the world? How could I, in fact, 
leave a mark given the limitations uh, as it pertained to um, you know, the, the material resources uh, that I didn't have. Uh, and Hamer's story was one that inspired me. Uh, it showed me the power um, really uh, of, of, of purpose, of having a clear sense of purpose uh, and knowing that regardless of the challenges that you're facing, regardless of the limited resources that you might have, uh, the key is to make sure that you're using your gifts and abilities uh, to make a difference, uh, no matter how small. And I think I found in Hamer's story, certainly inspiration uh, to make my own life decisions. Uh, and, and of course, I would go on to obtain a PhD um, and uh, in fact, write the books that I um, imagined I would write on uh, the Black uh, on black history, on, on the Black experience uh, in the U.S. as well as globally. And so Hamer is, is someone who I credit um, as really moving me and uh, inspiring me to make a difference. It's amazing. And, you know, she was, you know, a lot of people uh, may not realize she didn't enter into the movement for racial justice and the movement of, you know, social justice until well in her 40s, having spent decades as a sharecropper. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things about your book that really um, made an impression on, um, on me was how you keep going back to her quotes when you say she was she spoke the truth and so much of her organizing seemed to be, you know, predicated or based on speaking that truth about her own lived experience. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in fact, it, it it was I think um, important for me to center her words as much as possible, uh, and and I, I I sometimes chuckle about it because. Uh, as someone who teaches a range of courses, when I talk about writing with my students, I often say to them, you know, try to avoid quoting so much, try to avoid um, using block quotes. And uh, there's so much emphasis on, you know, the, the, the researcher's uh, voice, the writer's own voice. But in this particular book, I wanted to strike a balance between my own critical analysis, um, my own assessment of the primary sources of the documents of the speeches and so on, um, and, 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 but also make sure that I was not losing sight of Hamer's actual voice. You know, there was a moment where I said to myself, you can't paraphrase certain things. You know, that when, when Hamer expressed her views, um, she did so in a way that was so raw. She didn't hold back. Uh, you know, as I point out in the book, she did not subscribe uh, to any kind of respectability politics. This is a woman who had a sixth grade uh, education, uh, as you pointed out, someone who had lived uh, as a sharecropper, did not become an activist until the age of 44. She did not know the lingo, so to speak. She didn't have the, 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 the experience in, in, in these spaces. So she did not show up um, well-groomed, so to speak. Uh, she just told you the truth that was on her mind, very blunt, um, so honest, but it hit to the core. And once she spoke to you, even if it made you feel uncomfortable, it was transformative. There was no way that her words uh, didn't affect you, right? You, you just, you had to sit with them because they were so powerful. And I wanted readers to get a sense of that in the book. And so I constantly tried as much as I um, had to assert my own voice as a writer, it was important for me to tell the story centering Hamer's words as much as possible so people 
could in fact hear for themselves. And, and I wanted it to feel as though they were in the room with Hamer. And she's no longer with us, but her words are still here and her words are so powerful. They are very, very powerful. And having a, a collection of Fannie Lou Hamer quotes, um, I just I hadn't seen that before to the extent. Um, I want to talk about her life. You recount from her very, very young age of six being approached by um, uh, I guess a former plantation owner and her experience with racism. Um, but talk about her earlier life and some of the um, some of the experiences that led her to de later dedicating herself to social justice. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to um, to talk about the sharecropping system when we begin to imagine how Hamer came to be Hamer. Um, you know, one of the most difficult aspects of, of writing this book was having to, to sit with a lot of the painful experiences that Hamer endured and, and to know that they started so early in life. Uh, at the age of six, as you point out, Hamer was actually lured into sharecropping um, and this was the white landowner. And just to provide a bit of context for those who might not be familiar, sharecropping is uh, the system um, of labor that developed in the aftermath of the Civil War. And so once slavery was abolished with the passage of the 13th Amendment, uh, white landowners, in fact, uh, introduced this system of sharecropping as a way to keep Black people um, in a constant cycle of, of debt and, and certainly dependency. And it meant that um, many, many individuals who, um, of course, with emancipation should have been able to have full access and opportunity uh, even for land ownership, but, but that's not, that was not the reality. And so uh, Hamer's family, um, like so many other black families uh, in the US South were trapped into this system, oftentimes working on the very same plantations that um, they had been working uh, on under the institution of slavery or their relatives had been under the institution of slavery. And Hamer, simply um, one day, just you know, on the plantation with her family, the, the white landowner approached her and said to her, you know, why don't you pick some cotton? He, he lured her into picking cotton with the promise that she would be able to, to, to get candy and other things from the store. She was only six years old. And this sounded like a you know, pretty good proposition to pick cotton and be able to get some candy, but it was a trap and it was meant to ensure that she would um, prematurely begin contributing um, as a sharecropper, contributing to the white landowner's wealth. Uh, and that's what she did. And she did that until she joined the civil rights movement uh, in 1962. And so uh, she experienced a lot of hunger um, and, and poverty. You know, she talks uh, about, you know, her early life of oftentimes not knowing um, where the next meal would come from, certainly watching her, her, her parents struggle to make ends meet. Uh, she also talks about, you know, uh, the, the trauma of, of racial violence, of um, her knowledge of a lynching that had taken place um, in the Mississippi Delta that transformed her and, and, and helped her see uh, just the, the, a myriad of challenges that Black people were facing living under these conditions. Uh, and so, all of these things factored into, I think, her decision later 
to become a, a voting rights activist because for Hamer, by the time she finds out about her constitutional right to vote as a citizen of the United States, um, she, she realizes this is the key. This is the key to overturn systems of oppression broadly, but these are, you know, these, the, the ability to vote is the key to change not only um, Mississippi, but certainly to bring about uh, tangible changes on a national level. And it's, it's, it's so inspiring for her and, it, and it's empowering. And she wants to take that message to every single person who's willing to listen. And so yeah, was, she jumps right in. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say this was a early 60s with the Student Nonviolent mm-hmm. Coordinating Committee in Mississippi. And you, you, you write about this beautifully. Um, but, I, but you write about um, when she got on a bus mm-hmm. to register to vote in 62 mm-hmm. and seeing all the police lined up and going in a building and being forced to take a literacy test and what that was like for her, the threat of violence, the threat of um, police violence, and then going back where she worked as a sharecropper. Mm-hmm. T- t- tell us more about what that was, because that was in the 60s. And we have the story, yes. uh, stories that are popularized about uh, the civil rights movement. Most of them center on experiences of the men who were uh, front uh, leading movements. But this is not a commonly told story from a woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and in fact, I think when we look at Hamer's story, um, we begin to see so many of the layers, but but even what we talk about now um, in the modern context is intersectionality, you know, to borrow from um, Kimberly Crenshaw. And uh, as you point out, in, in, you know, in August 1962, Hamer joins the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. Uh, the first thing that she does is she volunteers to help. Uh, well, she volunteers to attempt to register to vote. Uh, and, and she's, of course, committed to ensuring that others can register to vote. But she travels uh, with a group of activists. As you point out, they encounter a number of roadblocks. And this is, this is a moment that I think um, Hamer talks about as, as, as being somewhat surprising because for Hamer, what is powerful about that mass meeting that she attends in August 1962 is the emphasis on the U.S. Constitution. It's the emphasis on particularly the Reconstruction Amendments. And so activists who were there that night are saying, listen, um, you have the right to vote as citizens of the United States. You've been granted that right since the 19th century, in fact. Uh, and, And so she knows that at least on paper, according to the Constitution, Black people are supposed to be able to vote um, and let's remember again, you know, we're talking about 1962. So this is not only so many years after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, we're talking about um, also many years after the passage of the 19th Amendment. Of course, we've been particularly talking about it um, over the last several months uh, in, in, I would say, broad celebrations, but mindful of the limitations um, of, of its passage in, in 1920. And Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, realizes uh, a number of things. She realizes that despite what's on paper, there are a number of strategies that white supremacists are employing to, to block black people from the vote uh, to ensure that they don't have the ability to exercise those rights. And that includes, as you point out, the literacy test. Hamer, uh, with a, a sixth grade education, is given his literacy test uh, with detailed questions about the Mississippi 
about this, uh, you know, about the state constitution. Um, she's not familiar with with these things, and, and and quite frankly, as we know from the history, many of the people administering the test didn't know much about this, you know, themselves. But but it was a strategy. It was a way to ensure that black people would not have the access to the ballot. Um, and the literacy test combined with uh, just intimidation, violence. Uh, she talks about the encounters with the police, uh, just a, a, a number of legal uh, and extra legal strategies were being employed to, um, to ensure that those rights that were granted since the 19th uh, century would not actually be uh, of any use for black people. So much so that as I point out in the book, an estimated 5% of the black population in Mississippi um, at the time was registered to vote, 5%. We're talking about 5% of estimated 450,000 people. Uh, we know the implications of that, what it means to have so many people's voices not represented. And, and so her experience, um, I think, peels back the layers uh, of um, the violence, uh, certainly the challenges of racism. Um, and to the point of what Hamer experiences when she comes back from, from this trip, uh, she's unsuccessful the first time. When she comes back from this trip, the first thing she uh, endures is having the white landowner tell her, listen, you need to go and withdraw your registration. You, you need to um, not be involved in this movement uh, or you can leave the plantation. And she makes a difficult decision to leave. She leaves her husband. And her husband, her husband and her were yeah. working there at the time. He exactly. had to stay, so she had to leave her husband. Exactly, exactly. And, she, um, and, and basically have no, no job. And is that the moment that she declared, like, basically dedicated herself full time to the movement? It was. Um, there's an interesting interview uh, in the process of doing the research that I came across where Hamer is talking about this moment. And she says that it was certainly a difficult moment for her because she thought about all those repercussions. She thought about the financial aspect. She knew this, was, this would be a huge blow on the family. But she said that it was the moment that she was set free. Um, and she said, mm -hmm. because uh, indeed what it did is it opened up for her the opportunity to thrust herself fully into the movement. Um, and that's what she did. I mean, she, she lost her job and uh, she was using a lot of her time uh, to ensure that she would advocate for voting rights. Uh, and she said it too, she said it was clear to her how powerful it was because if someone could go to such great lengths to ensure that you don't have the right to vote, then you know that this is going to be the tool um, that will make all the difference. And so it, 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 was, it was clear that she needed to hold dear uh, to this uh, and keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. You know, uh, uh, many of the chapters in your book link um, very famous modern day cases of state-sanctioned state violence against Black women, uh, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, um, uh, in the case of uh, the you know, the evolution of the Black Lives Matter movement for the murder of Mike Brown. Um, and you talk about its deep and historic connections and Fannie Lou Hamer's story is um, deeply linked to her own experience um, with, with state-sanctioned violence. And mm -hmm. um, I think I want to ask you both what she personally suffered as a Black woman Mm -hmm. from what abuse and violence she experienced, what she witnessed, and her response. How did her response to that um, set her you know, apart from other kind of strategies in, in organizing? Mm 
Mm -hmm. This is such an important part of Hamer's story. I referenced earlier this notion of, of radical honesty. Um, but one of the strategies that Hamer employed, which I think we can often take for granted, and that is the strategy of public testimony. We don't often think of it as a strategy, but but I think it is um, in you know in in the larger struggle for for human rights. And and so let me kind of explicate you know explicate what I mean. Hamer, even before she joined the civil rights movement in 1962, um, experienced something quite terrible, which I think is worth uh, emphasizing. And that is in 1961, a year before she joined the movement, she was the victim of, of forced sterilization. She had been hospitalized uh, for to remove a small uterine um, tumor. It was non-cancerous. And the white doctor who performed the procedure, unbeknownst to Hamer, decided to remove her uterus. Uh, this was a very painful, um, traumatic experience. And it's one that um, Hamer endured, but but to be clear, it's one that many Black women, um, women of color, uh, particularly impoverished women of color, uh, you know, in the in the South primarily, but not exclusively. This was something that took place nationally, uh, and Hamer, I think, was certainly shocked, uh, angry, as one can imagine. And but she'd been trying of, to have a baby. I just want to. Yes, it's the detail that you added. Yeah. She had been trying to have children and she'd had a miscarriage before right, right. she went in for health care the doctor removes the uterus but she did not know so sterilizes her and she didn't right. find out until later through gossip yes yes to add insult to injury uh, she finds out through gossip because the doctor was uh, related to the wife of the plantation owner and that wife decided to share the information Hamer learned about it through uh, the Whisper Network. People were talking about it. She did confront the doctor, as I explained in the book, who didn't provide an explanation. He didn't have to, um, as, as she pointed out, because this was not only common practice, but there was very little that Hamer could do. Um, you know, what could a Black woman living uh, in the Mississippi Delta with limited material resources, you know, in, in the context of the Jim Crow South, what could she do? Um, Hamer figured out that there was something she could do. And the answer came through public testimony. It was, how do you sort of flip the script? You know, you are clearly um, victimized in that particular context, traumatized even. And all of this takes place uh, in secret. Certainly people are talking about it on the plantation, but it's not widely known uh, what has happened to you. Um, I think there are so many people in that particular situation who would not want to talk about it. And, and we would understand that. I think everyone would understand why someone would not want to talk about it widely. Hamer decided that as part of her effort um, in the struggle for civil rights, it was important to shed light on the kinds of things that Black women were experiencing. And so she started talking, she started talking about four civilizations. One of the first um, documented civil rights activists who openly address it, uh, to talk about it all over the country, to address it in, in the presence of, uh, you know, uh, folks in the medical field who at times didn't even have knowledge, uh, you know, about the practice, she would shed the light. And for her, that was a way to, um, you, one could say almost take back her power because now she could, one, 
not have to take on some sort of shame that wasn't hers. Um, she did not commit the act, right? Uh, it was not her shame, as painful as it was. Now it was, it was an opportunity for her to, to have others see clearly what was happening uh, to Black women and then compel them to do something about it, right? Because yeah. when you don't know, then the excuse is, well, I, I didn't know, so how could I, how, could I, how could I fix a problem of which I'm not aware? Well, now you know it's on you. Um, and, and that's what I talk about in that chapter about this idea that people become co-owners of trauma through the, the act of public testimony. And here I'm you know, borrowing from um, the work of Kadida Williams, another um, remarkable historian. And, uh, and Hamer took that to heart. So it was speaking out against forced sterilization. It was speaking out against um, state sanctioned violence. Uh, she experienced a brutal beating uh, in Winota in 63, uh, which again, uh, was a moment where she could have easily retreated. She could have easily said, you know, this is too much. There's no sense in, in pushing forward, fighting for rights when, I, when I'm constantly going through these, these uh, painful experiences. I mean, that, that Winona Beaton um, left Hamer with a number of ailments. Uh, you know, as I point out in the book, Hamer was a, a disabled activist. She, she walked with a limp and the beating uh, in Winona worsened. Um, that limp, as well as left her with kidney damage, left her with blood caught in her eyes. I mean, this was very difficult physically, uh, as it was difficult emo you know, emotionally. Um, and Hamer still decided that she would talk about it. She spoke about even uh, the sexual abuse, right? Uh, because there were there were all of these um, sort of elements to it uh, that she wanted people to be aware of. Very There's difficult. a character, yeah, very difficult. There's a character of her uh, courageous leadership and testimony that uh, finds so much power in that vulnerability. And we can see in some of our greatest leaders, Black women today, who through speaking, um, speaking out uh, the trauma and the decision, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush on the steps talking yeah. about her personal homelessness. I'm, I'm thinking mm -hmm. of Congresswoman Barbara Lee talking about being a 15-year-old um, forced to go to Mexico for an abortion. I'm thinking of of really uh, women all over the country, you know, um, of, 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 across race who have found such strength in testimony, publicly testifying. But it does have, I, I think you've written about, it, it isn't an easy thing to do. Um, it's a very powerful thing to do. It's very different than the 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 men who led in the civil rights movement. I'd, I'd say very different. Um, I want to talk to you um, about her remarkable leadership um, and challenges with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. She's a person, as you said, that believed in the Constitution. She believed in uh, the amendments, the Reconstruction Era amendments. It guaranteed black people and all, all, all people these right the right to vote and she believed that the political process had to change. And so she organized um, and gave that famous speech, which was aired nationally. Can you set us up? What, what happened um, at, you know, at that moment, at that uh, DNC that year, mm -hmm. where Fannie Lou Hamer gained national prominence? Yes. And this is, I think, an aspect of Hamer's story that um, most people know a little bit about, which is that they are aware of that speech, which she gave 
but but they don't often know a lot of the context around it. And um, what is so interesting about that moment is it, it certainly catapults Hamer's political career. It's the moment that people um, on a national level find out who she is, but it's also the moment that she endures, I think, a lot of resistance um, within the movement. And, and so to give context, as you point out, Hamer um, played a pivotal role in the establishment of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which had been established only months before the, the Democratic National Convention in August. And this party was established to challenge the state party, which was an all-white party. Um, the Mississippi Democratic Party, um, as, as many other uh, state you know, Democratic parties, so this was by and large uh, Southern Democrats at the time, were, were not open um, to the idea of having Black people involved, um, certainly not in the political process broadly and certainly not in, in the party. And Hamer uh, worked to challenge this. And when she showed up in, in, you know, in August 1962, the idea was, or rather August 1964, the idea was that she would certainly shed the light on the exclusionary practices of the state party and she would demand that the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, recognize the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party um, instead of the all-white state party that had excluded, as I pointed out, an estimated 450,000 Black residents in the state. She certainly, I think, expected resistance from, you know, from, from white people who were, who were going to be uh, at the, the DNC. But I think she did not anticipate the resistance she would face from other black leaders, from other civil rights leaders. Uh, and I talk about the tensions that emerged with individuals like Martin Luther King Jr., um, Bayard Rustin, very important voices uh, in, in the struggle for black freedom. But, but these are individuals who were thinking differently. Um, and their attitude was, we need to certainly point out the challenges we need to advocate for black political rights but we also need to think about the long game you know it is this sort of approach to politics where you you don't push too hard in a particular moment because you're thinking about what you might be able to accomplish in five years or ten years um an incremental approach Hamer was not about that um so she demanded representation she wanted uh, those seats on behalf of the mississippi freedom democratic party well, they, and and just mm-hmm. a, they had offered her two non-voting right. seats and she said right. no exactly and these are said you no. know, these are symbols essentially uh, which gets us to i think a broader conversation even in today's context about what it means um to ask for certain rights and privileges and then be given symbols right i mean we saw this even recently i would argue uh, people demand changes when it comes to policing and uh, what's the response? Well, voila, you can now celebrate Juneteenth. I mean, it's not to diminish Juneteenth, but that's not what people were demanding in the streets. Uh, and so in a similar kind of way, Hamer says, I'm not interested in, in these two non-voting seats. I mean, these are, these are s- symbolic gestures. They don't mean anything. Um, and I did not leave Mississippi to come all the way to Atlantic City uh, to leave with, with gestures, I, I came here because I'm representing uh, people who have real needs and concerns. Um, who are who are going through? I mean, who are going through hell? I mean, people are are. We're talking about a moment. I mean, we just to give context again. This is Mississippi. I think most people 
um, will know the Emmett Till case, for example, of 1955. Right? I mean, Hamer's aware of all of these things. I mean, this is not some sort of distant memory to her. She's aware. Um, not to mention, she's seeing violence on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's this is not, urgent for her. This, this is, is urgent. urgent, absolutely. And so she is upset with leaders who are talking about what she views as a kind of gradualism. Um, you know, it's it's let's let's take this now because, and to be clear, these individuals are thinking strategically insofar as they're saying, listen, it's August, right? Um, there's an election. There's a presidential election coming up. So let's be careful what we do in this moment because we want to make sure that we can work in the future uh, with Lyndon B. Johnson. We, we want to think about all the kinds of things that we could potentially accomplish. And in truth, um, of course, this is all happening before the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 65. I mean, I would argue that it's Hamer's powerful testimony. Uh, it's, it's, it's her resistance in the moment that, that moves a lot of this forward. Um, not to, to diminish the work of, of any other activists, but the irony is that they were pushing her to acquiesce um, for the sake of progress, but, but ultimately her voice, I think, left a mark. She terrified Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, she gave a speech that he tried to, uh, to prevent uh, by holding impromptu press conference. In the end, those who heard the speech were deeply moved. And once again, uh, her public testimony made a difference and not surprisingly not only the passage of the voting rights act but you know even by the next democratic national convention it looked very different uh, you know than than the one of 64. so hamer encountered i think uh, a lot of resistance internally and and i'll just point out two brief examples uh, to my point um roy wilkins who i talk about in the book uh, who's a leader in the naacp uh, he described Hamer as an ignorant woman. And that was, I think, a moment that reflects, a, you know, multiple things. Certainly one could talk about the class dimensions, but I think there's also a sort of patriarchal. Oh, um, yeah. Absolutely. I was like, yeah. yeah, I was, you know, that woman. Um, yeah. And, you know, there exactly. weren't that many, there weren't that many women in the civil rights movement that were spokespeople that were, mm-hmm. I mean, she was uh, unique in that way. And these are the names of people. I mean, we say Wilkins name, it's like he's revered. But when you expose the sexism, then it gives a different a a different view. Um, You know, you wrote something in in, you had this uh, scene in the book where uh, in the wake of the speech to the uh, the committee where she's arguing that the Mississippi Democratic Freedom, the multiracial Mississippi party should be fully seated with votes. And in the wake of that, you had some of the very famous leaders that you talked about trying to wheel and deal in a hotel (laughs) room, um, you know, and not invite her. How did she handle that? Because a lot of us have been in those situations where, Hey, she's, she's pushing too far. Let's just, let's just do an in run around her. Right. She did not have it. I mean, she would not. She would not accept it. As soon as she learned that a meeting was taking place um, without her, she, you know, I can almost imagine, envision her running, <laughs> running to the room. I mean, she crashed the party, um, and she forced them to actually move outside of the room uh, because, you know, of course, the attitude was, oh, there's, there's no space. Well, fine, then let's get out of the room um, and let's have this conversation where, where not only I can be present, but others can be present too. She was deeply committed to the idea of 
grassroots leadership. Um, and, and that meant making sure that everyone's voice could be heard. She resisted this idea that only certain people were the leaders, only certain people could speak on behalf of communities, or you know, only certain people could, could make those decisions. Uh, and let's, let's be honest, there were many people who um, I think present at the convention and elsewhere who would have only identified, for example, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. as the leader. He certainly was a leader, but, but he was not the only leader. And Fannie Lou Hamer wanted to make sure that above all else, that her voice was heard uh, on behalf of her people, right? Always, she always would, would remind folks that she was representing not just herself, but she was representing the people of Mississippi. Um, you know, this, this reminds me of an interesting encounter, which I think is indicative of the, you know, all the tensions we're talking about. Uh, Adam uh, Clayton Powell Jr., who I think most people certainly know, uh, prominent black politician, was in a similar vein, you know, as other leaders trying to get Hamer to acquiesce, trying to get her to see a different perspective, trying to get her to accept um, the compromise. And he said to her, uh, he was not getting the response that he imagined. And so he said to her, you know, do you know who I am? And she, uh, and, and, and of course, we, we know the, the layers of that, you know, do you know who I am? It's like, I, I'm Adam Clayton Powell, like, do you know, I'm telling you something, you, you have to listen, because I come with authority, I come with experience. Um, and uh, she said, yes, I know exactly who you are. And then she posed a question to him, which I think is so powerful. She said, how many bales of cotton have you picked? How many beatings have you taken? And that was classic Hamer. It was this idea that, listen, not I, I'm absolutely going to respect um, your, your title, your position, your experience, your expertise, all of that is wonderful. But you know what my experience is? Uh, it's, it's violence in the state of Mississippi. Um, it's poverty, it's hunger. I too have experience. And my experience is grounded, right? It's a lived experience of being a sharecropper for all these years. And so when I'm speaking, uh, you have to listen to me as much as you expect me to listen to you, right? And, and it was a, a way to signal that she would not simply allow people to, to brush her aside because of her lack of experience in, in, you know, in, in, their, in their view and because of her limited formal education, all of these things she resisted. It's, it's so powerful, and it's so clearly the Black woman's voice. Uh, you wrote, uh, and I'm doing my best to you know, quote or paraphrase, despite and because of their mistreatment in American society, Hamer argued that Black women occupied a unique place in society, mm -hmm. echoing a long line of Black women activists who came before, including Black radicals Claudia Jones and Louise Thompson Patterson, she maintained the belief that Black women were at the center of interlocking oppressions of race, gender, and class, and that we as Black women, she said, have a job to do to support whatever's right and to bring injustice where we've had so much injustice. And I think that this, the, the, the story, the book talks so much about that unique role uh, and job of Black women, um, uh, even till today. Would you, you know, you're writing this about Fannie Lou Hamer, who lived many, many decades ago. Would you say that that's still the job of Black women today? I think so. Um, I mean, I, 
I have a, a mixed feeling, a mixed reaction, because um, I certainly agree with Hamer, but there is a part of me that hates to have to agree because I am frustrated by the fact that Black women to this very day have to constantly work so hard, um, quite frankly, to save this nation. I mean, I, it, it almost feels like every, at every moment uh, there is a crisis, and we saw this. We saw this just in the last couple of months. I, you know, I think, it, for example, um, someone like Stacey Abrams come to mind. It is wonderful, um, you know, just and quite remarkable. But I also say, why? Why does it always have to be, you know, the the burden? Um, of course, or some would, would would not use the word burden, but but you think about it this way, that. Black women uh, still are among the most disrespected uh, in American society. And, and I'm, you know, uh, sort of quoting here from, from Malcolm X, who, who, who made the observation. And yet, they're constantly relied upon, um, expected almost, to come up with the strategies to help build this inclusive democracy. And I'm not suggesting that others don't play a role, but, but, but it is frustrating that um, there is this grand expectation. And yet when black women are looking for the support, it's not always there. When they're looking for the help, it's not always there. And we see that in, in Hamer's life too, right? I mean, she sort of sacrificed so much. She gave of herself and then when you get to the last chapter, you know, so many people reach out to me and they said, you know, when I get to the last chapter, I just can't stop crying. Well, um, it is painful to see how someone who gives so much of herself, who's so selfless uh, in this struggle, not only for herself and for Black people, and, and to, to be clear, I mean, she is as much a human rights activist as she is a civil rights activist, which I point out in the book, to do all of that and yet find yourself in, in just a dark place uh, towards the end of her life, looking around um, for, for people to help and not necessarily finding them. And it just, it makes me think about, uh, it makes me feel conflicted about the, the sort of expectation, the burden. Uh, I agree, I, I do think, I, I very much think that um, it is powerful for black women to lead and, and in fact, um, you know, I think it makes me think about the Kambahi River Collective, uh, which which um, which comes a bit later in '77. You know, the Black feminist, uh, Black lesbian feminist group, which emphasizes the the centrality um, of of Black women's experiences and 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 makes a case that you know when Black women are liberated, you know, other groups by extension will be liberated. Um, all of that is is powerful, and I accept that. But I I do still feel a sense of frustration that it has to be this way, um, it really should be a collective effort always. That's my thing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us can relate to that. And, and this conversation is not just amongst Black women. And in mm -hmm. fact, the name of your book is Until I Am Free, right. Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I uh, wonder what your analysis of both what her message is, what's her enduring message, uh, not just to, to fellow Black women, but uh, to all of America. What's what's 
what's the message that, that her life, her sacrifice, her patriotism um, is uh, for us mm-hmm. today? The message is truly encapsulated in the title. Um, you know, as Hamer traveled across the U.S., she would say often, you know, nobody's free until everybody's free, or um, sometimes she would put it another way, uh, you know, whether you are white or black, um, you are not free until I am free. And that to me is so significant. I understand that not everyone will fully embrace that message. I certainly hope that more people will, uh, because it's a message that gets us to move beyond the individual and, and truly to the collective. Uh, we, to this very day, we are constantly battling, I think, what, what one might describe as a struggle between you know, the individual and the collective. You know, when you make a decision, do you make a decision simply because it will benefit you or do you make a decision um, thinking about the whole, thinking about those around you? And Hamer's message to every, every American, certainly, and I think this really transcends national borders, but the message was that we are all part um, we're all part, so within the national context, right, we're all part of, of the American polity, um, and even widely, you know, we're part of this human family. And what that means is that when one person is hurting, um, it has an effect on us. Even if you don't see it uh, in your everyday life, right, it, you know, you may not have to, to worry about um, an encounter with the police. You, you might not have to think twice about you know, applying for a position and, and experiencing discrimination, maybe that's not your experience. But to know that someone else has that experience should bother you enough. To know that someone else has to, has to be, you know, concerned um, every time they have an encounter with law enforcement in a way that you might not have to be concerned, like that should bother you because in fact, you cannot experience true liberation if anyone around you um, is in chains. I mean, that's the, the message to, to America. And I think if we, all of us had that political vision, certainly most of us had that vision, things would change rapidly because we would spend a whole lot less time saying, well, you know, I didn't experience this or, well, you know, I didn't have a problem getting a mortgage, you know, so what are you talking about? Well, okay. Um, But, but, but we're trying to tell you that other people are having challenges getting mortgages, right? Other people are having challenges when, when they walk in with the very same credentials um, and other people are not getting the same response from their doctors as you might. And, and that fact uh, should bother you enough because this is a collective, right? This is our nation. Like this is, we are all responsible um, and our fates are connected. What, whatever this nation becomes will ultimately affect all of us. So this is a message that I think is so enduring. And I hope that those who read the book will be moved uh, to begin thinking that way if they're not already thinking that way. And Hamer certainly wanted that message to be heard loud and clear. And I wonder as we move on to questions, if she'd be surprised <laughs> that she's <laughs> that her message has endured. Well, let's have some audience questions, a couple of live questions for students to start. Rachel Konigi is uh, studying political science at UC Berkeley and has a question. 
Hi, my name is Raquel Kanuki. I am a senior at UC Berkeley studying political science. And my question is, what is the first steps that we as consumers and perpetuators of history can take to seek out and learn about these powerful figures, especially women like Fannie Lou Hamer, that history has tried to push to the wayside? <laughs> Thank you so much for that question. Um, I would say uh, several things. I mean, one of, one of, the, one of the reasons that I try um, as much as possible to write in all kinds of venues. You know, I think some, sometimes, um, I know some people are often surprised, you know, to see me writing for MSNBC, for example, and they'll say, are you a journalist? I'm like, no, I'm not a journalist. I'm a professional historian. I, I teach at the college level. I, I write books on history. Um, but it's so important for me to be writing in these spaces because I've learned, you know, through experience, that so many people do not have access to a lot of the information that I have access to, to a lot of the information that my students have access to. And I think of myself um, as an, an educator broadly, far beyond the four walls of, of any institution and in any physical classroom. I think of the world as my classroom in that sense. Um, and, and I think writing in these spaces provide a way to ensure that information gets out to a broader public, a broader community, beyond the people that I, that I may encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and, and, and the truth is so many um, amazing writers, uh, historians, uh, but not exclusively historians, uh, people from all, um, all different fields are, are writing um, ex you know, accessible articles and, and books that ultimately I think make it a lot more difficult uh, to say, you know, I, I don't know or I didn't know. I mean, now we have Google and I always, you know, I smile when I think about it, how quickly one can find information. And so what I think is important um, is not only, not simply relying on, on what, what might be taught even in the, the classroom setting. And I say this as someone who, you know, I spent a lot of time putting together syllabi, but I love it when my students uh, reach out to me and say, you know, professor, I'm not sure if you saw this, I came across this article, it adds this other dimension to our conversation. And that to me is powerful because it, I think it, it, it helps to show the role that all of us can play collectively um, in the process of, of educating. And uh, so it's not just a one-way street, right, in that sense. Uh, and, and so I would say make full use of an array of um, resources that are available. Um, I'm the president of the African-American Intellectual History Society. so. I, I have to put in a plug um, for our, our organization. That's what we do. We, we are committed to um, producing scholarship that's accessible to all. Um, I would also mention, you know, the Zen uh, Education Project. I mean, just so many um, easily accessible outlets where you can find uh, both primary and secondary sources that shed light on Black women's experiences, in particular to your question, but broadly share light on all of these narratives that, that tend you know, to be overlooked in traditional kinds of settings. Uh, so I hope that's helpful. Uh, and um, I, I, I'm certainly doing my part and I know so many others are, are trying as much as possible to make that work uh, available to all. Thanks, Dr. Blaine. And that was a great question, Raquel. Um, one other uh, question, freshman at San Francisco State University majoring in broadcast and electronic communications, Demiel Taylor, um, uh, why don't you ask your question? 
Hello, Dr. Lane. My name is Demille from San Francisco State, and I wanted to know, along with Fannie Lou Hamer, who are some other unsung female activists from the civil rights era that you've learned about or would like people to know about? Thank you so much. Another great question. There are so many women, and uh, um, one comes to mind, particularly because I, I was just reading about her in the news, and so hopefully people are, are seeing the news circulate about Claudette Colvin. Um, we, we generally talk about Rosa Parks in the context of the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, um, and Rosa Parks is certainly uh, important uh, in the larger narrative, but we don't often talk about Claudette Colvin, who was only, um, uh, who was a teenager, you know, I think about 15 years old, and months before Rosa Parks refused to get up, uh, and, uh, you know, Claudette Colvin did the same. I mean, she refused to, to get up when a white um, bus driver asked her to move in order to give the seat to a white person. Uh, and many people don't know her story, but it's such a powerful one, not only in seeing, um, you know, black women, we're talking about black women, but to emphasize that this was a teenager uh, to, to help us see how vital young people were in the movement uh, and their narratives are, are not always emphasized, but, but it's so powerful. And of course, Claudette Colvin is in the news because she at the time was, uh, was arrested. So she's now demanding um, that her record be cleared and she's in her eighties now. And so uh, that's one person who comes to mind. Uh, also Ella Baker, of course, th there are so many, I, I think folks who write about Ella Baker, I, I think immediately about Barbara Ransby who's written an amazing book on Ella Baker uh, but still, I, I think we need to to know more about Ella Baker, and I, I would love it if everyone would, you know, pick up um, Barbara Ramsey's book. Ella Baker was the visionary behind the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, or SNCC, that I mentioned earlier. And in fact, she was a mentor uh, for Hamer, um, someone that Hamer truly admired and learned from. Uh, those are just two quick examples, but I'm writing a book now on Black women and the struggle for human rights from 1865 to, to the present. So wow, so many women that I'm even encountering for the first time in the process of doing the research. Uh, there are so many stories that have yet to be told. And how powerful to tell those stories. Um, we have a lot of questions and just a few minutes left with you, Dr. Blaine, but I'm gonna, uh, well, let's do our best. Uh, here's one. So many young people want to address injustice today, but doing so can feel intimidating or impossible to them. What do you think Fannie Lou Hamer would want to tell them? I think Fannie Lou Hamer would say um, that you have to be courageous. And, and I understand that, of course, it is often easier said than done. Um, I think about my own life and, and the moments where I've had to be courageous and, and, and at times been fearful to, to speak up in the face of injustice. Uh, I think one of the lessons from Hamer's life might be instructive here uh, and that is, we oftentimes are thinking about how to strategize alone. We're often thinking about how to fix all kinds of problems alone. And the irony is that we don't have to work alone. We actually don't have to strategize alone. Um, could Hamer have stayed uh, in that meeting in, in August 1962? Hamer could have listened to what activists had to say she could have said, aha, okay, I'm, you know, I have this information I need. She could have walked out of that meeting and decided to, 
to lead her own campaign on her, you know, just on her own. And, and she could have, many people um, have certainly taken those kinds of approaches, but she joined the movement. She joined an organization. She connected herself with like-minded individuals um, and they provided support for her. And they provided, I think, the, the kind of structure um, that made it possible for her to work effectively. So I emphasize this because I always tell my students uh, you have to be creative and you have to be thinking about ways that you could come up with strategies, but understand that there are people already working, right? There are groups already established, organizations, um, you know, organizations like the NAACP have been around for a very, very long time, the Urban League. I mean, I just, uh, and, and these are just two quick examples of, of places and spaces where you can tap into them, you can connect um, and figure out how you could be of service um, and how you could you know, lend your, your skills and your talents. So I think that's an approach and, and, and there are strengths in numbers. So sometimes when you lack courage, um, you can find the courage often when you're, when you're connected with, with other individuals who may be fearful too, but your presence gives them a sense um, of empowerment and, and their presence will do the same for you. So I hope that's helpful in thinking about how to strategize, uh, you know, as a young person, whether it's on your campus or, or off the campus. Courage is so important. Thank you for that. Here's another question. Uh, so many of us look up to Fannie Lou Hamer as a leader. Do you know if she had any role models or anyone she admired in her life? Absolutely. And so I mentioned Ella Baker um, and also Bob Moses, who you know unfortunately passed away um, fairly recently. Um, there's a moment where, where you know we were talking about the the DNC earlier and Hamer. Uh, as much as I, I explained in the book, you know, she was so defiant. She was clear about not wanting to accept the compromise of the two seats. There was a particular moment where she began to doubt naturally because she, you know, she's watching all of these well-known, you know, established, well-respected leaders um, challenge her over and over again. And there's a moment where she begins to wonder, you know, is she really making the right decision in sticking with her conviction? So she goes to Bob Moses and Ella Baker, and she she poses the question to them, you know, do you think I'm making the right decision? And they say to her, you know what's best, not only for you, but you know what's best for the people of Mississippi. We trust you um, and we trust you to, to make the right decision. And she talks about how powerful that was for her to strengthen her in the moment. Um, and she always looked to them just as two examples um, as mentors who never, never, tried to tell her what to do. They, they would encourage her. Um, they would invest their time and resources, but they never, never pushed her around and said, listen, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. Uh, they allowed her to operate you know, through her, her gifts and her, and her abilities. Uh, and so those are just two quick examples of individuals who Hamer identified as mentors and certainly as friends. Well, it's pretty amazing. Um, we're almost our time together is almost uh, coming to a close. But I, I got a question um, in the chat. I have to ask you really quickly: If you, Doctor Blaine, had the opportunity to ask Fannie Lou Hamer any question, what would you ask her? Wow, my first inclination um, is to ask her her thoughts on the book. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want the answer. You know, as, as I said, Hamer was very blunt. Um, 
you know, I, as I wrote the book, more than anything else, uh, I just, I want to make sure that I've done justice, you know, to her, to her story. I certainly agonized um, over every chapter, every word, because it, I, I, I would hate to have presented something incorrectly um, and um, be curious to know her thoughts. But, but I think probably um, the other thing that crosses my mind is I'd want to know from her if she would do anything differently. Um, you know, as I point out in the book, toward the end of her life, towards the end of her life, she was, you know, she was struggling with, you know, feelings of, of depression and, and sadness, you know, not only dealing with the physical ailments, but, um, but just emotionally, you know, everything had just taken a toll on her. And, um, and I'm just curious to know if she would have done anything differently, you know, would she still have given that powerful speech in, at the DNC? Uh, would she still have spoken out against, you know, so many different things that she spoke out against, which caused her problems and um, in her personal life, certainly her, in her political life? That's a question that I would ask her. I'd be curious to know what, what she would say. Hey, we would in, mar in modern uh, parlance call that trauma, like yeah. through her trauma. Um, it's no doubt she's a great patriot of our, of our time. Um, I want to thank you, audience, for your terrific questions. And uh, before we officially wrap Dr. Keisha Blaine, it's a tradition here uh, to ask all of our speakers a following question. I'd love for you to answer. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Oh, you got 60 seconds. Wow. So. <laughs> Honestly, I, I think it goes right back to Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, if we could just all shift our perspective and begin to think more about others than ourselves, honestly, I think if we took that approach, we could probably fix just about every challenge that we're facing as a nation and um, as, you know, I think as people collectively across the globe, we could overturn so many systems of oppression if we would just shift the focus from I to we. Mm, beautifully said. Thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Keisha M. Blaine, for joining me today on Inform at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all for joining us. A reminder that the fabulous, fabulous book, Until I Am Free, can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. Um, and if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Amy Allison. It's been such a pleasure to be with you here today. Thank you so much and stay safe. Join us November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for the Commonwealth Club's virtual gala. Raise your glass to good health as we celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Text CLUB 2021 to 41444 to register and donate today. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.